0: North Korea, has Kim Jong-un crossed the line, condemnation and many questions.
1: When a country fires a missile over another country's territory, is that an act of war?
0: More troops for Afghanistan? Should the UK answer Donald Trump's call for help? And 20 years after her death, Diana's landmine legacy. This week, the UN Security Council condemned North Korea for firing a missile over Japan. It has demanded that no more missiles are launched and has called for Pyongyang to halt its nuclear program. Nikki Haley is the US ambassador to the UN. The world is united against North Korea. There is no doubt about that. It is time for the North Korean regime to recognize the danger they are putting themselves in. The United States will not allow their lawlessness to continue. And the rest of the world is with us. Well, Max Borkus was the United States ambassador to China from 2014 to 2017 until Donald Trump became president. He warns against underestimating Kim Jong-un.
2: I think we're in a difficult position. And I say difficult because um, um, I think that uh, Kim Jong-un is, is a rational person. Uh, he's not a that case, as many believe or like to believe. And he's is essentially in the catbird seat. Um, it's up to Kim now as to what happens next. He's looking at Western reactions to, and trying to determine for himself where the red line is for him. And I think he's pretty, he's a sharp cookie. I think he has determined pretty well where that red line is. That is, if he crosses it, that he invites some massive retaliation. So hes hes, he's we're in a tough spot. Which, And I think that the solution just, a large degree of um, depends on how well we, that is, the Western countries, United States and UK and others, uh, can work with China. And China's going to drive a hard bargain. Uh, China's not going to just stand idly by as the United States um, tries to work out a potential unilateral uh, uh, solution with uh, North Korea. And um, we, we, we're in a new era here. And it means the United States, especially since we tend to lead on these matters, have to be very shrewd and smart in figuring out a, a, a concerted a solution, which includes many countries, but especially China.
0: Well, I'm joined by former Defence and Pentagon correspondent for The Times, Michael Evans, and also our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Mike, Hi. is Max Borkas right about King Jong-un? Is he a sharp cookie?
3: I think absolutely. I totally agree with that. In fact, I've been sort of saying that for some time. He's uh, he's quite cunning. I think. I think he 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 says right. I'm going to do this. What is the reaction going to be from from Washington in particular? And I think he's got it pretty well right. Uh, he, you know, there's lots of sanctions against him, but this last outrageous launch of a ballistic missile over the territory of Japan, all he's got is condemnation from the UN and nothing else.
0: Do you think he understands that he's found his red line now? Do you think he will sort of pull back from what he's been doing?
3: No, I think he. I think he knows what the red line is. Not his red line, but Trump's red line or America's red line, which is if they, if he actually fires a ballistic missile to hit territory where American troops or other troops are, that's completely a red line. There, he knows full well. He's, he is a sharp cookie, as the ambassador said. He knows full well that if he does that and kills a lot of people, he's going to get a massive retaliation. So he's not going to do that but he's going to get as close as damn it.
0: Mm, The US Defence Secretary has contradicted President Trump over whether diplomacy is the way forward. Um, Why would he do that?
3: He didn't, I think, probably knowing Jim Mattis, he didn't actually contradict the President. What he did say was, when he was asked, because of the tweet from Trump which said, you know, you can't talk to Kim Jong-un anymore, what Jim Mattis said was, when he was asked. uh, No, the diplomacy is not at an end. He he wants diplomacy to continue for as long as possible, in fact, forever, uh, because he does not want to launch uh, a military strike against North Korea because he knows the devastating consequences that will lead to. That's not to say he hasn't got the plan already laid out and to hand to Trump if he wants it. But he, like all sensible four-star generals, knows that the best way forward for anything to av- is to avoid war and to achieve a solution
0: by diplomatic means. Christopher Lee. Uh,
4: all f- as, as Mike says, all four-star generals know exactly, especially in modern four-star generals, um, in the West and in the United States in particular, they know that everything they've done militarily hasn't worked. And that is a problem. It's not worked as advertised. That's that. So there, there are no doubts about this. So you never hear a general saying, oh, we can fix this militarily, uh, and, you, and we don't need diplomacy anymore. The other thing to remember um, in this sense of diplomacy, it is not diplomacy between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. There is a lot of talking going on between North Korea and other people uh, all the time on different issues. I mean, for example, it can be something like a tourist that was uh, detained in North Korea or some issue they've got with South Korea. And these are the ways which eventually, when the storybook gets done, this is the way, you see, ah, that's how we got on further with this. Mm. Um, But, you see, we've got uh, KCNA, which is the the, uh, North Korean news agency. It's saying, for example, Japan... Not America. Japan is our sworn enemy and they put out a long piece yesterday and this was the emphasis on it. Japan is our sort emphasis. Of, well, if you just sort of hoisted a, a, a sort of an intermediate range uh, rocket over Japan, you're going to say that sort of thing, even if it's only to justify it. So let's just look a bit be- behind things and we get a better idea of what might be going on rather than what we anticipate we'd like to go on.
0: Mike Evans, what can China do to ease this crisis?
3: Well, well China basically is well, the only country in the world that can put massive pressure on North Korea. They claim they've put pressure on North Korea, and I'm sure they have. But I don't think Kim Jong Un has got the message. Uh, China has agreed to sanctions, which means that they're going to, for instance, impose. Uh, uh, they're going to stop coal imports. So, okay. So, so they've actually taken some action. But I'm not sure whether the president in Beijing has really picked up the phone to the president or to Kim Jong-un in, in Pyongyang and said, right, this is it. Uh, you've now reached the end of things, because if you, if you do X, Y, Z, we are going to do the following things, and we're going to end this for once and for all. I don't think that's happened. I think Beijing is still playing a careful sort of uh, dual, dual-handed game, and uh, at some point, China has got to say, enough is enough, that's it. Whether that message gets through to Pyongyang properly, I don't know. I think he's, he, he, he may be cunning, but the one thing he is is also isolated. And when someone is isolated, they can tend to make very bad mistakes.
0: Well, following North Korea's latest missile test, what actually constitutes an act of war in this day and age? In earlier times, would Japan have seen this as war and how should nations respond to provocations? Well, MP Tom Tugendhat is the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee.
1: I certainly do wonder, when a country fires a missile over another country's territory, is that an act of war? When a country tries to assassinate a prime minister of another country, is that an act of war? Or when, for example, it tries to bring down the power networks of a third country, is is that an act of war? At what point is there an act of war, and at what point is there, therefore, a justified retaliation? Because we've based our theories on war, really, on St Augustine and his just war theories, uh, from nearly 2,000 years ago, really 1,700 years ago,
0: and historian Margaret MacMillan says one man's war is another man's provocation.
5: It depends on who's doing the defining. I mean, one clear act of war is to attack the home territory of another country. So if you bomb or attack, as as the, as the Japanese did at Pearl Harbor, that's an act of war. That's very clear. But often it is whether or not the country which wants to go to war feels that it has been an act of war. And so sometimes countries ignore
0: provocations. Sometimes they decide to seize on them. Well, Mike Evans is still with us. And Mike, do you think the definition of an act of war should change?
3: Well, the definition of an act of war has changed. It has evolved massively over the years. I mean, we've had wars where the wars haven't been declared as wars. Uh, So it has changed completely. And I agree with your previous speakers. Uh, the, the point is, when is it right for you to, uh, to go to war with a country? Clearly, if your country is attacked first, you have the right to defend yourself. That is an act of defence as opposed to an act of war, if you like. It doesn't necessarily lead to war. Mm. But I think, uh, yes. So I think, in, uh,
0: in that light, Mike, um, if there were to be a surgical strike against North Korea, would that be an act of war?
3: Uh, again, it depends why they're doing it. If it's preemptive. Christopher, Christopher
0: Lee's nodding here, actually. If
3: it's preemptive, in other words, if America has not been hit by yeah. uh, an ICBM from Pyongyang, but has just been threatened, then taking preemptive action is an act of war. I mean, there's no question about it. And it's, even if you don't think it is, it would be seen as an act of war in Pyongyang. So, in that sense, it is definitely an act of war. So the, 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 the big question when a week or so back when Kim Jong-un was talking about uh, firing the missiles at Guam, clearly if, if the missiles had landed on Guam, act of war, there would have been massive retaliation. Mm. But the tricky thing, which is why he's so cunning, is he then said, OK, we're going to drop them 20 miles short of Guam now. What, what do you do How close as the do you have to United get, States? basically? Is that an act of war? In my view, it's not. It's an act of total provocation, but it's not an act of war. Likewise, launching a missile over Japan landed safely, if that's the right word, 700 miles off Japan. So was that an act of war or just a bit of cheek? You know, serious, serious cheek, but is it an act of war? Mm. In my view, mm, it, today, when it, it's so dangerous to go to war, then I think let's, let's try and say it's not an act of war. It's just Kim Jong-un trying to provoke the world, but doesn't actually want war.
4: Ma- um, uh, Margaret Macmillan, in her book on Versailles, which, which looks at the big origins of the First World War as well as what happened afterwards, makes it very clear, one thing, there is no such thing as an act of war, in as much that if you go to war then that's what you're doing uh, You anything up to that point you don't necessarily retaliate or whatever it doesn't actually matter it's what your original intentions could be and it could be in the mind of for example like Kaiser Wilhelm II um, what your intentions or his generals might have been or the mistakes and miscalculations so it doesn't actually matters what you uh, you go on to do. The other part that <clears throat> I think she makes a, a very good point about, and you could, con- you could you could actually translate it in what the North Koreans have done with an intermediate range uh, missile over the top of Japan. They say, we're going to fire it. And this is what it's probably going to do. And we have given you very clear instructions. This is what we're going to be doing. And so when we do it, it wasn't an act of war. We told you what we were going to do. Um, and we weren't going to do it in retaliation to anything. We weren't going to... It
0: was a military exercise. It, it, well,
4: it doesn't even have to be a military exercise. We're just actually, you know, we've got a test-firing programme going on, uh, and this is what we're going to do. And we, by the way, we, you can actually see now how we can control that system so well... Mm that you may feel yourself, you want to sort of uh, tone down some of the uh, things you've said about us?
0: Mike Evans, it was suggested to me by one analyst this week that actually it would suit Kim Jong-un to attract uh, some kind of surgical minor strike on North Korea because then it would sort of excuse and take attention away from the dire poverty in the country and the difficulties people are facing there. Yeah. No,
3: <laughs> maybe, <laughs> okay. But, but I mean, I won't but, name
0: but, the person who said it. Then, <laughs> but,
3: uh, but I mean, you know that he he doesn't care about people think what they think about what's going on in North Korea as far as poverty concerns. No, no uh, I just think He doesn't I care of the monkeys. But the no, point but to is, detract
0: from his internal problems. I suppose is what he was well, saying. Well,
3: yes, yeah, sort of. But I mean, a, the the a surgical strike then puts him in a very tricky position himself. Does he then massively overreact? Or does he come up with some cunning plan and doesn't react? Quite tricky, but I mean, the, the, the chances are that if the Americans do a, a surgical strike, it will lead to something which none of us uh, want to
4: think about. It of. ain't going to be a small strike, that's mm. the whole point. Gentlemen, There's no point in a small strike. No. We will be ta- I am
0: sure we'll be talking about this uh, far too soon. Thank you very much, Mike Evans, former Defence and Pentagon correspondent for The Hello. Times.
2: Sit, Rep. Oh,
0: still to come. Anarchy in Libya is the country beyond repair. The former head of the armed forces says President Trump has been unfairly criticised for a lack of strategy in Afghanistan and Britain should be doing more to support America in the region. Lord Richards of Hirthmansu, who was chief of the defence staff between 2010 and 2013, suggested the UK could send an extra 1,000 troops to help beef up the NATO training mission. Rosie Layden reports.
4: We will ask our NATO allies and global partners to support our new strategy, With additional troop and funding increases in line with our own, we are confident they will.
5: When President Trump unveiled his new strategy for Afghanistan last week, there were complaints about a lack of detail and calls for Britain to exercise caution in her response. But Lord Richards believes now is the time for the UK to do more.
6: This is an opportunity to remind people that when uh, we see uh, a proper, and I know there are criticisms that it's not, the detail means you don't understand the overall strategy. I'm quite clear there is a coherent strategy, which we can play a, a key part in. Uh, when that moment comes, we ought to do so, and that moment has arrived.
5: Uh, more, tell, uh, what... The UK currently has nearly 600 troops who are mostly involved in the Afghan officer training programme. Lord Richard says he wouldn't rule out a combat role for British forces, but he thought it more likely they'd be called on in a training capacity.
6: Say they were to put in another 1,000 trainers and take on other responsibilities uh, elsewhere within the overall training effort. Um, and there may be other things we can do, um, then, then the Americans will say, actually, you know, the Brits have responded. They're back where we, where they were in our estimation, as opposed to being seen at the moment as a, a, a questionable asset. Because what do we produce? You know, we put a couple hundred in there, and a couple hundred here. Okay, we're doing officer training in, in Kabul, but is it of strategic significance? Arguably, I'm afraid not.
5: Lord Richards warned that without international engagement, Afghanistan could return to the chaos of 2001 and provide safe operating areas for al Qaeda and so called Islamic State. He believes if NATO demonstrate proper commitment, the Taliban could be defeated.
6: If we can show that actually the Afghan government will be properly resourced, their armed forces will not be defeated. All we've got to do is push the Taliban to the periphery of Afghanistan so they're not a strategic threat. Uh, to the country? Uh, what is the point of them living, you know, permanently in fear of attack? Um, you know, it's not it's not just us that get fed up with war. Um, and slowly, as more and more young people, you know, migrate to the cities and all sorts, all sorts of things like that, their support base will become eroded. So I am reliably informed that there is a route out of this, which many Taliban leaders would like to be
5: Additional American troops are yet to deploy to Afghanistan, and so far the UK has given no indication Britain will increase her commitment. But behind closed doors, serving chiefs of staff and ministers will be discussing what a positive or negative response to the US call to arms would mean for Britain.
0: That was Rosie Layden reporting for SIPREP. Christopher Lee, um, she was saying there that additional troops will be sent. But it uh, turns out today that there are actually 11,000 US troops in Afghanistan, considerably more than the 8,500 previously mentioned. Um, what's all that about?
4: Well, the arithmetic's wrong. There are about fourteen, more than 14,000.
0: So even more than that. Even,
4: more, even far <laughs> more than that. There are 14, about 14,000. When you do that in percentages... And you've got thirty percent more than they're actually, there. but that doesn't matter. Are we I mean, too it, hung it, up on
0: numbers, really? Well, it,
4: it, it is also isn't it's a, to some extent, it's an insignificant number. is what you do with the people that you you've got there, and if you think about it, at any one time there are one hundred and fifteen thousand. Uh, Americans there mm. uh, at one time. They still didn't hack the problem. And when you get, for example, uh, um, uh, General Richards saying that he is reliably informed, well, he was reliably informed for a heck of a long time during this war what, and still didn't get it right. But what he's and saying also a- Mattis, General Mattis, excuse me, General Mattis in, in, in the Pentagon is not asking As the general general Richard seems to be saying, he is not asking for any strategic uh, 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 significant numbers uh, from the United Kingdom at the moment. United Kingdom is actually doing the the job that they can do, do and they haven't got any more soldiers to send. And
0: just do do you believe there is a coherent strategy?
4: What in for for the whole of Afghanistan? Mm. Uh, no, there isn't a coherent strategy. You can do what you can do with your ambitions of what you have. You know, you've laid out, sort of, as in the American case, there are 17 strategic areas which they've laid out. They're uh, they coming to those 17 and they're doing them. What they haven't done is they say, right, we now go into Helmand in the biggest numbers that we ever had to do before. In other words, they're not going to reinvent the war in Afghanistan.
0: The FBS the removal of Colonel Gaddafi in 2011 has been a tragedy so far for the people of Libya, according to the Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson. He said we were way over-optimistic about Libya's future, adding that the elections of 2014 made things worse. His comments came after a recent visit to Libya where he urged rival parties to compromise and unite the country. Well, Oliver Miles is a former British ambassador to Libya and is the deputy chairman of the Libyan British Business Council. Good to speak to you today, Oliver Miles. Is Boris Johnson right? Have things got worse?
1: Well, I, I think I don't really agree with him, no. Um, I think that what we did in, in 2011 was the right thing to do. Uh, the consequences have been unhappy. Um, whether they're worse than than under under Gaddafi is hard to say. Things were pretty terrible under Gaddafi. I was rather shocked when um, a, a parliamentary committee did a report on this, and and uh, they could reach the conclusion that um, Gaddafi's threats to to carry out an act of genocide in 2011 were. Uh, not really credible, but they ignored completely in their report the fact that he'd murdered 1,200 people in a in a prison massacre only, what, 10 years or something like that before that. Uh, I think they should have taken that into account, and I personally think that, that we were right to do what we did. Libya's in a mess, though. There's no, no concealing that.
0: Yes, and when the Foreign Secretary says we were way over-optimistic about Libya's future, what do you think the UK government believed in 2011, and what do you think we've actually got?
1: What the UK government and the other governments um, were, were faced with in 2011 was an uprising against this dictator, Uh, which was successful in eastern Libya, but hadn't reached Western Libya, hadn't reached Tripoli. And it seemed that Gaddafi was holding on to Tripoli. And he threatened, quite explicitly, to use his heavy weaponry and so on to carry out revenge against the people of eastern Libya. That went to the Security Council uh, at a weekend completely unexpectedly. Nobody, nobody had been expecting this to happen. And the Security Council concluded that the threat had to be taken seriously and that the necessary action had to be taken to prevent Gaddafi doing what he'd said he was going to do. I don't think anyone was being particularly pessimistic or optimistic at that time. Nobody, nobody was thinking in terms of, of uh, how are we going to rebuild the country of Libya after Gaddafi has gone. They were dealing with a threat of genocide.
0: Yes, and when you look at the situation right now in the country, recent news was that there's been a ceasefire agreed when the French president went to visit. UN-backed Prime Minister Fayez al-Saraj has agreed that with Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, two of the main leaders in the country at the moment. How significant do you think that is?
1: Well, that's good news, but the trouble is that there aren't just two leaders in Libya. There are a lot of leaders, and uh, there are a lot of, of uh, disparate elements who are fighting one another, quarrelling with one another, largely for, for selfish purposes. And um, it's, it's more complicated than than your summary suggests. I don't blame you for that.
0: For a man who was a diplomat in Libya, the British ambassador to Libya, how hopeful are you that one day there will be a stable, functioning country there, and perhaps united?
1: Well, I think that that is a reasonable thing to hope for. I've been hoping for it (laughs) ever since 2011, and so far I've been disappointed. The thing to remember about Libya is that unlike the other countries of the Middle East where we have these terrible problems, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, there there are no real reasons for Libya to fall apart.
0: All right. Oliver Miles, former British ambassador to Libya, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Christopher Lee. The Foreign Secretary also said that Libya was the front line in the fight against terror, that people will be travelling through Libya to access the UK and people who have become radicalised and fought for IS will be returning to the UK and causing problems on our soil.
4: Yeah, well, they can come in a small boat from Calais to Dover, quite frankly. Yes, that is true. But it's equally important to recognise that this is starting to get a grip of it. Now, I'll give you an example. There's a guy called Hashem Abedi. Hashem Abedi is the, um, is the brother of the guy that did the Manchester bombing, right? They've got Hashem Abedi. They've also been talking to Ramadan, his, uh, the father of the, did, the guy that did the Manchester bombing. Uh, they've let him go, but the brother, they think, was supplying the materials. They've nicked him. They're going to put him on trial. That will happen probably in about three weeks' time. This is a big leap of cooperation. There is a further one that's just happening, probably in the last couple of... maybe 48 hours. And that is that the Libyan's chief investigator into counterterrorism, Asidik Asur, who is an absolute mustard, trained in London, etc., MI5, he has got a list of perhaps baddies in the UK. And he supplied that list, or he's about to supply that list to MI5 down on the embankment in, in, in London and also to the Manchester police but also most importantly to the Metropolitan Police. Now this is a huge huge change this is, this is cooperation stuff now when Oliver Miles talks about there is no reason why Libya can't be a sophisticated country as once it was. Mm. Uh, well, this under, is proof under, that it is well, in, well, the, in even that under respect. King, even under King Idris it was like this and there was a big intelligence operation when King Idris was in power which is Yonks ago
0: Let's have a look at some of the other things around the, in the news this week. It's 20 years, of course, since the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. The rest of the world may see this as a Hello Magazine-type moment, but uh, she had many connections, of course, to the military and, of course, quite a legacy against landmines, Christopher.
4: Yeah, she was the person that first did it. You know, she walks in... The area which supposedly, In Angola. There's famous which, pictures. which Yeah, there's famous pictures. And there she is. Nobody had done that before, like a lot of things that, um, that the princess did. But the important thing was there was a direct connection with something which was going on, and that was the Ottawa Convention. Um, and 122 countries within the Ottawa Convention... The I,
0: Treaty of Signing Against Landmines. The land Treaty mines,
4: Signing so. Against Landmines. And out of the 737, I think it was, people that actually had landmines, 32 said okay we will we will get rid of them. They haven't all done so, uh, and also a lot of them haven't actually ratified it with their own governments that it could happen, but it was it was it was it was a connection that the British Army and a lot of other people understood and and Prince Harry has continued this
0: uh, yeah uh, in the recent speech that he made on the subject he said twenty seven of the countries decla- have been declared landmine free of the thirty countries that were deemed to have uh, quite a serious massive control of nice
4: America would come into it. but okay, but that 's another thing the other part part of it, which is the sort of almost the social thing. Uh, she was colonel of the Princess of Wales' own Welsh, I think it was, Welsh regiment, and also the Hampshires.
0: How much affection was she held with?
4: Enormous. Uh, there's silverware in the two messes, the surviving meth- messes. Mm. There. Uh, there, She's toasted. This is, it's, it's extraordinarily important that people do care. There's a... It, it, the royals always have a connection. I mean, the royals are sort of colonels of this and colonels of that and captains of this. Mm. But the important thing was she was unlike anybody other than the Queen Mother. She was held, uh, certainly in some of the regiments, with the same affection as people saw the Queen Mother. Mm.
0: Just uh, other stories around this week. Iraqi forces are, are now saying they've ousted so-called Islamic State from Tel and the whole of Nineveh province. A real blow for ISIS, do you think?
4: Well, they're on the move. Mm. Uh, and when they were on the move, they move thought that where? Uh, well, you see, they can they can move up to the other end. I mean, we're getting back to this idea that if you look at the if you look at the eastern part of uh, Syria, for example, uh, and you say, right, one day that is going to be badlands, the no man's land, mm. and the decide will have the western part, and it'll be a federal sort of thing. Well, that's wishful thinking. A lot of people you just want to survive. But the point is, ISIS what are you going to call them, Daesh, are not going away because of this. And they were coming out through uh, Lebanon with Hezbollah. Um, and this was earlier this week. Mm. And there was agreement that they would be allowed out uh, freely. And what happened is that the uh, the Americans went in there with their air force and they bombed all the trucks, uh, and they bombed the highway, and they didn't allow them out easily. As far as they're concerned, they're a terrorist organisation.
0: Mm, and, and finally, it's being announced today, the next major Anglo-French military exercise will be begin in September. Is Two and a, big and a half deal?
4: thousand, yep, it is. It is always a big deal, I think. Yeah. I mean, people say, in France, oh yes, you know, it's just the British and the French. The truth is this, the British and the French are the only people in Europe that can put together a sort of uh, battle brigades. Uh, And when you think about it, you know they both got uh, aircraft carriers. I wouldn't, don't think much of the French aircraft carrier. Nobody ever does, actually. Uh, But they've got their own sort of uh, battle uh, groups. Uh, They've got their own air forces, which are competent at all levels, so you can transport people. That becomes important in in rescue operations, like uh, you know, uh, say in in Africa. They've got the colonial experience. They've got the colonial expectations, Um, and so they are the only people in Europe that could put together a military operation, those two countries, if everything got sticky and the Americans said, if I ring Europe, who do I call? They call the British and the French, mm. uh, uh, and that'll be it.
0: And on that note, we shall leave it this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS Sitrep, And remember, you can listen again on our website, BFBS.com slash SITREP. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye
5: the best of british news sport and entertainment
0: for the british forces overseas this is bfbs radio 2